Hey, welcome to NASA Edge. An inside and outside look at all things NASA. Hey, we're here at NASA Kennedy Space Center in sunny Florida, and we're getting ready to watch the launch of the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, which is located on Complex 41 and going to the asteroid Bennu. But before we actually bring in our first guest, Blair is over at the countdown clock, and he's with a special guest here from NASA Kennedy Space Center, a longtime veteran, George Diller. Blair, take it away. That's right, Chris. We are here with the voice of NASA. So, George, you've been part of uh, NASA launches and countdowns for years and years, providing great commentary. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to provide that critical information to audiences everywhere as they watch these fantastic launches. Well, you've, you've always got a little bit of anxiety going into it. But after you get started, there's so much going on in, in the countdown plus the NASA TV information, flow of information that you're supposed to convey about the mission that you just forget about all that. You just, you know, you, you've got the plan, you've got the program, and you, you do it. But there's a fair amount of preparation that goes into two aspects of it. One is the launch countdown itself. And each one, while some parts of it are always the same on an atlas, there are a lot of things that are mission unique to the particular spacecraft that's flying. So you've got to be very familiar with the countdown. On the other hand, you're also trying to come up with as much meaningful information to convey that's relatively simple so that you're not you know, going over the head of your viewers and trying to also have some interviews to go along with it to make sense of it all. So it's just kind of a little bit like baking a cake and then you get to the time of, of launch and hope that, that, that it's, all, it, it, it's all baked out well. <laughs> Now, just real quick, I want to know, what's your most memorable launch experience in, in your years covering these events? Well, I've, I've worked kind of both sides of the aisle. I've done a lot of the unmanned, the expendable launches, and there are a number there that I'm quite proud of, you know, such as Cassini and, and Galileo, Pioneer Venus. But on the other hand, if, if I look back on the shuttle program, which I also participated in, I'm really proud to say that I was part of the entire shuttle program. I was there for the first launch and I was there for the last one. And if I have to look back and pick something that was most memorable of all the great launches, it, it will probably be Hubble Space Telescope because I participated in working with the test team to prepare that for launch, then the launch itself plus all five servicing missions. So I'm a Hubble hugger and proud of it. Now, you know, Space Station has been great. I mean, we built Space Station, we couldn't have done it without shuttle, and it's really gratifying to look back now that the shuttle program is over and see that all the science, everything we had hoped to do with the Space Station when we were building it is now coming to pass. It's happening just the way we hoped. That's quite a legacy, uh, George, I have to say, but also I've got one question. It, it, I, do you, are you ever attempted when you're doing the countdown to start at 11 or, or do halves or, or, or just mix it up a little? Not, not quite sure where I understand where you're coming from, but you know, the way I go about it, I think maybe I see where you're going, is that the, the countdown is not scripted all the way through. You work depending on the part of the countdown. Some of it is scripted, pre-prepared. Some of it I work from index cards and some of it I do right off the top of my head as as things are going on. The only thing I've been accused of having that I do not have is somebody holding up cue cards for 10, 9, 8. No, 
I can do that. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm sure you don't need cue cards. And in fact, I always just picture, uh, I hear your voice sometimes in front of the micro microwave and it's going 10, 9, I'm waiting for my popcorn to finish and I hear your voice. So, so it's, it's a significant legacy. But anyway, thanks so much for being on with us, George. Thanks for your commentary. Yeah, it's good to be here because I've been familiar with NASA Edge for so long and now to, to be you know part of it is, is great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And an endorsement too. You really can't ask for more than that. Now back to Chris. Hey, thanks, Boyer. We're here with Christina Ricci, uh, who's the Deputy Program Scientist for the Cyrus-Rex at NASA Headquarters. How are you doing, Christina? I'm doing fantastic. Boy, you are yeah. so energized for today. <laughs> I, I, can just I, I just, I can't believe this is finally happening. This team has worked so hard, and, and there's so many people that have done fantastic jobs here, so I'm just so happy for them. And so, uh, one, of the, one of the first questions I want to start off with is that OSIRIS-REx is part of what they call the New Frontiers Program. Yes, yes. So, what exactly is the New Frontiers Program, and how does the OSIRIS-REx mission uh, kind of fall within that program? Yeah, so the New Frontiers Program is actually planetary science divisions um, at NASA headquarters, medium-sized missions. So, it's the, not the small discovery class mission, but the next one's up. They're PI-led missions, and they're really exploring new frontiers new discoveries. So the first New Frontiers program mission was New Horizons, which as we all saw last July, zipped past Pluto and is just unraveling great mysteries about that icy body. And the second mission is Juno actually, and it just entered orbit around Jupiter in July. So a couple of good Julys there. But we're really here to celebrate the launch of our third mission of Cyrus-Rex. I mean, what a great trio of, of yes. missions that you have under the program. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, couldn't have a better record right there than these three, so I, I love it. Yeah. Now, one of the coolest things I like about this program, of course, uh, Cyrus-Rex will be heading out to the asteroid Bennu, yes. eventually bringing back a, a sample. Yeah. Uh, why is Bennu an ideal candidate uh, to, to go to? Well, Bennu was chosen based off of three criteria. The first was accessibility. We needed something that was relatively close nearby, so a near-Earth asteroid. Uh, Bennu has an orbit of 1.2 years around the sun. It passes by Earth every six years, and its inclination, its degree plane, is fairly similar to ours, so it was easy for us to get to. Second criteria, the size. We needed something big enough to where we were able to do proximity operations around it. Like this is a 3D model okay. of Bennu. Uh, this is based off of the radar imagery from Arecibo. This actually has a rotation period of 4.3 hours. Okay. And for size perspective, Bennu's diameter here at this equatorial bulge is 492 meters across. So think about the size of the Empire State Building. Oh, wow. Um, so its circumference is right around 1,500 meters. Okay. And so we're able to take our spacecraft and basically zip around the asteroid and do that detailed mapping that we want. And then we're able to safely approach and collect that sample. And then the third reason why we chose Bennu was its composition. So it's carbon rich. We know its geologic history, which is important because it likely has preserved materials from over four and a half billion years ago. And we're hoping that it contains those organic molecules that were the precursors to life, either here on Earth or elsewhere within the solar system. Well, I tell you what, you know, uh, coming up now, uh, I had a chance uh, about a couple months ago to talk to the principal investigator for OSIRIS-REx, Dante Loretta. And so let's learn more about the OSIRIS-REx mission. So Dante, before we get to the OSIRIS-REx mission, tell us, what, what is an asteroid? Asteroid is a space rock that has survived from the very earliest stages of solar system formation. 
They primarily reside in the solar system between Mars and Jupiter in an area we call the asteroid belt, but some of them tumble into the inner solar system and become near-Earth objects. You've been studying the asteroid since 1999 when it was first discovered. What measurements will OSIRIS-REx spacecraft be taking versus the telescopes that you're using here on Earth? Yeah, we've used a wide array of telescopes, not only on Earth, but in space, including the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescope to observe Bennu in advance of our mission. And we've learned a lot about it, especially its orbit, its size, its rotation state. But what we can't get is really detailed information about the chemistry and mineralogy of its surface. We need to get there with the spacecraft, use our scientific cameras. We have visible and infrared spectrometers a laser altimeter, which will map the 3D structure of the asteroid surface, and a student experiment, an X-ray imaging spectrometer, which will tell us about the elements that are there. We'll get detailed information about the geology of the asteroid, its minerals, and the distribution of grains that we can pick up with our sampling mechanism. Now, based on the, on the instruments, the scientific instruments you have now, what do you think that the asteroid is composed of right now? Uh, we think Bennu is a carbonaceous asteroid, rich in organic material, probably accompanied by water-bearing minerals like clays that capture a really interesting phase of the early solar system. It records an era of history that is lost on the surface of the Earth. Now, as the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft is heading out towards the uh, Bennu, how soon will you be taking scientific instruments of the asteroid? Yeah, science observations of the asteroid start during the approach phase, when we're about half a million kilometers out. That's about August of 2018. Okay. And we'll be looking at it like a telescope would. It'll still be a point of light against a distant star field. And that's actually a great time for us, because we'll get data from our spacecraft instruments that are exactly analogous to what we got from our telescopes. Okay. And then slowly it'll come into view and start to resolve, and we'll see it as the world that it is. We spend about 60 days during the approach phase until we get into the proximity of Bennu where we can see it as a resolved object. And then from that point on, we're basically formation flying with the asteroid. So we can move into a bunch of different locations, get different viewing angles. Ultimately, we'll go into orbit around it and use that as our staging location for sampling events. Now, one of the cool things I was reading about the science goals, you're going to be looking at the Yarkovsky effect. Yeah, the Yarkovsky effect is an amazing phenomenon. Really, has been discovered and understood only over the past 10 years or so. Basically, what happens is a small asteroid like Bennu, small being less than a kilometer or so across, uh, receives energy from the sun, its surface heats up, it's rotating, and as it rotates, it releases that energy as infrared radiation back out into space. And that release of infrared radiation acts like a thruster, and if the object is small enough, it'll actually change its orbit substantially. So since 1999, have you been noticing this effect? Yeah, so Bennu comes close to the Earth every six years. It has an orbital period of 1.2 years. We have an orbital period of one year. So every six years, they line up and they're in close proximity. And that gives us an opportunity to observe it again. So we discovered it in 1999. It came very close within about two lunar distances during that apparition. And we use the Arecibo radar system to actually measure the range from the Earth very precisely. Same thing happened again in 2005 and in 2011. And so we had a 12-year arc of observations in order to characterize its orbit. We saw that the Yarkovsky effect had been influencing its position and it had changed by over 160 kilometers since our first observations. Just from that observation, can you project that asteroid's orbit is gonna be 20, 30, 40 years down the road? Yeah, we actually can predict the orbit very precisely out to the year 2135. And in that year, Bennu will do a very close approach to the Earth within the one lunar distance in between the Earth and the Moon. The solution scatters after that because of the uncertainty of the gravitational interaction with the planets and its position. There are many instances where Bennu would be on an impact trajectory after that close approach, and that's when we get into a statistical assessment. 
Is there going to be any gravitational effects between the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft and the asteroid itself? There certainly will be. I mean, we're going to be interacting with the object. We'll be in orbit around it. The good news is, is we will not change the likelihood that the asteroid will hit the Earth. Awesome. Now, I think a lot of people want to know is the sample return. Will you be analyzing those samples on the return trip at all? No, the samples after we collect them are just in the sample return capsule, quietly waiting for us to open it up uh, at the Johnson Space Center. Okay, so they, they travel back, it arrives around 2023? Yeah, September 24th, 2023. And then the real science begins? That's right. And then what happens from there? Uh, well, it's Christmas in September, right? After 21 years of thinking about and designing this mission, I finally get to see what Bennu is made out of. And uh, we get that material into our analytical chemistry labs right away, and we start to unravel the secrets of the solar system. So Dante, one last point. You're the PI in the project, principal investigator. But at one time, there was someone else who was a principal investigator. Uh, would you like to share the story? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, you know, we work every day on this program in memory of Dr. Michael Drake. He was my friend and mentor. And we worked together for seven years, writing proposals to NASA to get this mission selected and, and flying. Unfortunately, he passed away four months after we won the contract in September of 2011, and I was promoted up into the role. So we have a plaque dedicated to him that's on the spacecraft. He's with us every day in our memories, and uh, we know he'd be really excited right now. We're here with Ed Bashore, who's the deputy principal investigator for OSIRIS-REx. Thanks for coming on, Ed. Uh, my pleasure, Blair. Now, what I'm wondering is, is uh, this is obviously a very complex mm -hmm. operation, and you, there's a lot going on, but you're doing all the speculation and mm -hmm. planning for mm -hmm. something that's not really going to take place, or you're not really mm -hmm. going to get the data back, that's right. you know, for many, many, many years. That's right. So what are you guys going to be doing after today's Sure. Launch? Well, we've got about What's a two-year cruise to Bennu. <laughs> and uh, during that period, we're going to be practicing. We're going to be, we have a lot of procedures, a lot of, as you say, we have a lot of complex maneuvers around the asteroid. Our flight dynamics teams are going to be analyzing and reanalyzing the trajectories that we plan to fly around Bennu. Our science team has a very important operational responsibility when we're at Bennu. Typically, the scientists kind of go along for the ride, and once you get into orbit around an object, they, the, the engineers say, okay, it's all yours, start taking data. In this case, uh, the scientists are actually delivering important mapping products that help us navigate around the asteroid, as well as, like any good explorer, when we get to Bennu, we have to start making maps. We've never seen Bennu up close. And in order to be able to decide where the right sample site is, we need to start making maps at a global scale, and then we can down-select to a smaller number of sites or a small number of uh, select sites, and then look at those sites in detail with higher fidelity maps. And those maps are designed to tell us, can we deliver the spacecraft to that spot on the asteroid? Uh, is it safe to go there? Will, uh, is the temperature and the tilt and the boulder field around that, that area, is, is there any, any hazard? Will we find sampleable material there? And then if we're fortunate enough to have multiple sites that meet all those criteria, which one is scientifically more interesting? So that whole process is part of our mapping campaign, part of our investigation campaign that takes 15 months before we actually begin practicing for our tag or touch and go maneuver. Really what we're gonna do is we're gonna spend a year or so actually getting a better understanding of the asteroid itself, how it tugs on us, how it pulls on us, how we can navigate around it. And then once we understand that and we have a chance to analyze those data and pick where we want to go to collect the sample, we leave the orbit that we're in, we match its spin rate, right? It rotates in about four and a half hours, Okay. right? And then we actually go down and make sure that the spacecraft's about perpendicular with the surface, so it's gonna come in at the right angle. And then we do a second maneuver that'll actually put us on a path to go down and do a touch and go with the asteroid surface. 
and that path is important because you're, you're actually sort of moving along with it, so it's a slow process. It's not like a, a high risk of collision or anything like that. It's very slow and orchestrated. Absolutely. We're able to take our time not only in, in establishing that we understand what the asteroid itself is doing to us, but that we understand the spacecraft and how it works. So we practice every step before we get to do it. And that's really important because you can basically do three of these touch and goes, right? Yeah, we carry enough resources on board to do three sample attempts. So we've got three sets of bottles of gas, all the consumables, essentially, we get three tries. And, and that's why all that planning helps, because you don't have to worry about whether any part of the acquisition is going to be a problem. You right. make that sample. So chance. we have a high confidence by the time we go do yeah. it. But even after the first time we do it, if we come up and we find out that we don't have as much as we thought, the TAG-SAM, which is the collection mechanism itself, is actually additive. If we do find out that we don't have what we thought, it is possible that we could actually go back and, and add more material in a second attempt or a third attempt. Oh, great. Now, TAG-SAM? What, what is TAG-SAM? So TAG-SAM is the touch-and-go sample acquisition mechanism. It's an instrument that was designed and built at Lockheed Martin. Basically, it looks like your arm. Right, okay. so it's got a shoulder that's right next to the spacecraft. It's got an elbow that unfolds. It's got a wrist that makes it so that the head can actually get in contact with the sure. asteroid. It basically is a compressed gas system that collects material very quickly. We're actually in contact with the asteroid for only between three and five seconds. All of our sample is collected in about the first second and a half. Wow. And this whole TAGSIM, this is new. This has never been done before, uh, is that correct? It is new. So we matured the technology as a part of the OSIRIS-REx program. We took it from a very low laboratory demo type of a instrument and produced it into something that's now fully flight qualified, which means we've shaken it, we've cooked it, we took it through a vacuum. We've done a wide range of sampling testing over all sorts of gravity exposures, heat, pressure, different types of materials to try and collect to make sure that we were going to be successful in the mission. Welcome back, and I just want to let everybody know we're looking at about uh, three hours until launch time, and everything looks good, at least from our vantage point, right. which is great, right? <laughs> well, Franklin, I wanted to tell you about the piece that we just saw with Richard Coons. I, the, the spacecraft that they have put together to get this sample is absolutely amazing. And the thing that the thing that blows my mind is that they have enough time and they've put in enough planning that they can actually go down and do everything but kiss the surface <laughs> of, the, of the asteroid and know that they're going to get exactly what they need. It makes you wonder if these NASA folks ever lose their keys. I mean, because they're so, <laughs> like, everything planned for so down to the wire that they must not have any problems with any details like that or anything like that, you know? They can't have problems with details. And, and speaking of details, you know, the Launch Services Program is the program that works with the mission, with the OSIRIS-REx. And I talked to Chuck Tatro about how Launch Services Services works with them to get to the launch day today. So Chuck, after OSIRIS-REx comes to LSP and says, we are trying to make it to this asteroid, how do you manage that entire process? Well, we look at that spacecraft's needs, where they need to go, either in Earth orbit or beyond, and we pair that science mission with one of the rockets that's in our fleet. 
And based on the size of the science mission and its energy requirements, we look at the different rockets and buy a launch service from the different launch service providers that we have available. It could be Orbital ATK, which provides and builds something like a Pegasus rocket. It could be the United Launch Alliance, which we use for Delta II rockets and for the Atlas V rockets and the Delta IV that we've purchased for Solar Pro Plus. Or it could be the brand new player on the street, which is the Space Exploration Technologies Corporation, which we use and provide the Falcon 9 vehicle. After you've selected ULA to work with the science mission, how do you manage that process going forward? So throughout the mission integration cycle, which starts when we buy the launch service from United Launch Alliance, the launch services program manages that contract. We provide insight into what's going on with that launch vehicle. We look at the other launches that United Launch Alliance has on the same launch vehicle to make sure there are no issues or things that would change the overall reliability of that launch vehicle. Now, launch services programs, since we have bought a launch service and not a rocket, we can't tell the manufacturer that they need to change something on their rocket. We can only look into it and maybe provide recommendations or things that could make their product better. One of Launch Services Program's missions is to make sure that United States-based launch vehicle providers are successful so that they can compete in the global marketplace. For every mission that we select, in parallel with what's going on on the launch vehicle, we have a spacecraft facility here where the spacecraft is doing their testing, they're getting ready to launch, they're doing their final loading of fuel, and they're testing out their systems to make sure that when they get to that asteroid, everything is going to work correctly. Launch Services Program provides that spacecraft customer with that facility, with those support items that they need at the launch site, whether it be here or at Vandenberg, so that they can successfully process and meet up with the rocket. Now, I know LSP handles launches here in Florida as well as over in Vandenberg on the West Coast. Does the process of preparing the spacecraft for launch does it change from mission to mission? That's a very good question. Actually, it doesn't. It's very consistent whether we're launching here or any place else in the world. Generally, the spacecraft needs several weeks to a couple of months to do their final testing. They need a place to do that. They need a place for their personnel. They need some special support or test equipment to be here to do that. Most NASA spacecraft take anywhere from two to four months to prepare for launch. OSIRIS-REx, in this case, has taken about three months for all their final preparations, their testing, their loading of fuel, and their preparations to go on top of the Atlas V rocket. Well, that wraps up our pre-launch coverage of NASA EDGE, and we look forward to seeing you back at 6.30 watching NASA EDGE. And inside NASA look At all things NASA. 10 seconds, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And liftoff of OSIRIS-REx, its seven-year mission to boldly go to the asteroid Bennu and back. Good. Pressure, so we can channel. Channel pressure, so we can 